Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and this is the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Saints Come Marching In edition. As we get you set for Sunday's game at Paul Brown Stadium between the 5-3 and three Bengals and the 7-1 and one New Orleans Saints. Coming up, some outstanding material for football junkies, as you'll hear from two guests who are great at looking at the game from different perspectives. First, you'll hear from the tape study guy, Greg Cosell from NFL Films and ESPN. He's one of the very best at studying the game tape and explaining the X's and O's without either confusing you or putting you to sleep. And then you'll hear from the analytics guy, Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus, the website where they grade every player on every play. Before you hear from Greg and Sam, I'll discuss the latest Bengals news and look ahead to Sunday's game with my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. All of that is straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. It's the greatest invention since listening to the radio online or on an app. As many of you know, I also broadcast University of Cincinnati basketball games, and following Wednesday's season opener against Ohio State, I got a text message from a buddy who is currently in China on business, and he wanted to let me know that he listened to the broadcast in Shanghai. I know that Bengals fans all over the world do the same thing every Sunday, and if you're one of them, leave a comment and let me know. All right, time to talk football with Dave Lapham. Lap, we thought the Bengals would get healthier after the bye week. Now comes the news that A.J. Green is likely to be out for a few weeks, at least, with a foot injury. At least it sounds that way. Now what? It seems like this is a reoccurrence of a prior injury, potentially, because it's the same foot, same type of injury. So, yeah, it's interesting. Doesn't need to have surgery. That was just confirmed, which is good news. But you don't know how long he's going to be out because I remember in that instance, he had an insert put in his shoe and tried to play and, and couldn't do it. So it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds as the as the week and weeks go along. But yeah, when you lose a guy like AJ Green, that's a that's a that's a, that's a tough. Tyler Boyd uh, started to taste a little bit what it's like to get double teamed. He's going to taste it every snap now. They're going to tilt coverage to him. Auden Tate. Uh, unfortunately, due to the injury to Carl Lawson of the ACL, he's on the IR and it opened up a roster spot, and they brought Auden Tate up from the practice squad. And, you know, hopefully he gets his opportunity because he's one of those guys that's open when he's covered. You know, he's a big guy, can box people out and can make catches. Biggest thing to do is catch the football. You know, see if he has some kind of a niche or a role carved out in the red zone or third down packages, whatever the case may be. So, yeah, it's going to be one of those cases, Dan, where there's not another A.J. Green. You're not going to be able to replace him with another guy so it's one of those old sayings everybody do a little nobody has to do a lot because nobody's going to be able to do what A.J. Green does just one person other people across the board are going to have to step up their game collectively to replace A.J. Green. The Bengals will definitely be without Carl Lawson for the rest of the year. He only had one sack in the first half of the season lap, but he was third on the team in quarterback hits behind Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap. How is Carl Lawson playing and who gets those snaps? I think Carl Lawson was playing well in terms of, you know, making the quarterback get off his spot. You know, he a lot of times he was the initial uh, penetration guy, and uh, the quarterback had to make a move as a result of, of his effort to disrupt, and then other guys would, you know, would benefit from it. So, I mean, he's he's 
definite factor in that edge rush. And there's, no, there's no doubt that uh, that Carl Lawson is is a huge loss. There's no question about it in that nickel pass rush. Guy that's going to, I think, play more snaps outside and not as many as, as a pass rushing defensive tackle in the nickel is Sam Hubbard. Sam is going to have to, uh, you know, be involved, and I think I think he'll do well. You know, they got a rotation now where they're they're basically down to four defensive ends. So, you know, Michael Johnson can go inside. Sam Hubbard can go inside. Both those guys can slide inside and play nickel defensive tackle and pass rush from there. You know, you can have Jordan Willis and Carlos Dunlap on the edge. Then you can also, you know, leave Billings and Atkins in there and let Hubbard and uh, Michael Johnson take some snaps as, as defensive ends as well, you know, for a rotation standpoint. So you have the versatility of Hubbard and Johnson being able to, to do both, to swing inside and, and stay on the edge. And, uh, but I think, I think that their snaps will increase, and I think Hubbard's will decrease as that, uh, as that you know, that nickel defensive tackle pass rusher. Um, and I think, will it be, will they give the same look that, that Carl Lawson gave? No. You know, not, not necessarily, but they both have their own skill set, and and I think the Bengals will uh, will be fine with that with that rotation. But you know, they're down to eight, down to eight defensive linemen now instead of nine. With uh, Carl Lawson going on on injured reserve, they brought up Auden Tate and and stayed uh, with the with the eight down linemen and just have a a pure rotation with uh, four interior guys and four guys on the edge. Sticking with the D line. Adolphus Washington was in for 35 snaps in the last game. He had three tackles, including a sack. He had another quarterback hit. How has he looked since joining his hometown team? I think he's what I thought he'd be in terms of he's pretty athletic. I mean, he's, he's a guy that, that uh, he's, he's a big body guy, but he has great lateral movement, you know, and he has upfield burst. He can, he can penetrate. He can, he can move well, like I said, from side to side, his lateral movement skills. The sack that he got, everybody was fooled by the hard play fake. It was, you know, it was, it was a hard play action run to the left away from him. He was playing the defensive tackle on the opposite side, and everybody, linebackers included, everybody bit hard, and he didn't. So he saw something. Red said he just took it straight up the football field, and as a result of that, got a quarterback sack, uh, contained and corralled the quarterback individually, and then took him to the ground. So that was uh, that was a really good play by him. And and I think as the season goes on, and he becomes more and more familiar with not only this defensive scheme and terminology and everything that goes along with it, but his teammates and how guys, you know, it's it's just like an offensive lineman. I remember playing when when you first started playing with a new tackle, and the twists and stunts and and penetrate tackle loop or the or the reverse, the tackle penetrate end loop, you have to have a feel for what level. You know, one, one tackle might set a little bit deeper than the other. One guy has longer legs, shorter arms. One guy has longer arms, shorter legs. You just have to get a feel for the, for the guy next to you, and it becomes an unspoken, you know, communication. And then you don't even worry about it. You've done it so many times. You know if you pass that guy off, the tackle's right there to take him, and you're going to take the looper. Well, same thing with defensive linemen. You know, they have to have a sense and a feel for, all right, is he going to hit the gap? hard is he going to grab two is he is he more of a penetrator that doesn't grab two he just grabs one you know there's different things that you have to uh, work through and the only way you can do that is by repetition and practice repetition is one thing but in a game totally different ball game you can rep it 50 times in practice and it'll never unfold the way it unfolds in a football game in live action with with you know guys you've never gone against and as an opposition so there's a lot to that Lap, according to the website Pro Football Focus, where they grade every player on every play, the highest graded Bengal at his position is not Geno Atkins, who is 10th among interior linemen, or A.J. Green, who is 7th among wide receivers. 
It's rookie Jesse Bates who ranks fourth among safeties. Does that surprise you? I'm not shocked. Maybe mildly surprised that that he transitioned as quickly as he did. I think they had a lot of confidence in him because we've met him and know how intelligent he is and focused he is. And, you know, he's like we talked about, Dan, he's one of these rookies that seems like a 10-year guy. You know, Sam Hubbard and last year's rookie class had Willis, same type of guy. They they come in as rookies and they act like they're, you know, five, seven, ten-year pros already um, in terms of understanding what it is to be a pro and how to get ready mentally, physically, every way uh, there is to do it. And uh, I, I do remember with him veteran players saying uh, during the course of training camp when I was asking about him how he's doing back there, saying, uh, remember him saying that he doesn't hesitate to ask these veterans questions. And then I asked the veterans, you know, Bates is pretty inquisitive, huh? and they're like, yeah, man, and, and, you know, he has good questions. It's not, he doesn't just throw stuff out there just to, like, you know, do it to maybe try to impress you. He's asking good, good questions. So we know that he's understanding the big picture. And so that was, that was an encouraging sign. And then uh, the guy's a playmaker. You know, they were, they were wanting to get that injection of uh, that type of player at the state to position. They've gotten it, and it's rubbed off a little bit on Sean Williams. Both of those guys, three interceptions apiece, you know, amongst the league leaders. And Jesse took one back for a score. That's one of the four defensive touchdowns. So they've had their issues defensively, no doubt, but he's definitely been a bright spot. Lap this Sunday, the Bengals host the New Orleans Saints, who lost their opener 48-40 to to Tampa Bay and have not lost since. And the guy leading the way is their 39-year-old quarterback, Drew Brees. 18 touchdown passes, one interception, the best passer rating in the NFL at 120.6. And the interesting thing, Dan, also on third down in the fourth quarter, the two money spots for a quarterback, he's got a rating of over 120 in both of those instances. I think he's second in the NFL in one category and like third or fourth in the other. So he is big time. <laughs> and the thing about he's a unicorn, you know, a six-foot quarterback in, in today's NFL where the prototype is the six-foot, five-inch strapping lad with the big, strong cannon arm. Um, you know, Mahomes is 6'3", 230-plus pounds. Drew Brees is a peanut compared to that guy. But he throws with such anticipation and accuracy, and he knows his offense, I mean, inside out. And uh, I remember here recently, you know, reading reading something about how even um, when he has a bye week or in the early stages of training camp, he'll go out and, and go through all of his reads and all of his movements against air just to get his entire workout in. And people are like, you know, hey, why don't you go home? We have a week off. And that's just he gets in that mode. Nobody outworks Drew Brees. And uh, that's he's a great example of there are no shortcuts and, you know, hard work pays off. And uh, for him to do what he's done, and this stat is the interesting one of the week for me. You know, I saw it uh, a while back where he's thrown for 4,300 yards or more, 12 straight seasons. John Elway never did it once in Elway's 16-year career in the Hall of Fame. Breeze, a model of consistency, 4,300-plus yards, 12 straight years after ripping up a labrum. I mean, you know, he, he first pick in the second round to the Chargers. They went LT and Drew Breeze. LT's in the Hall of Fame. Drew Breeze is going to be. I mean, Chargers had a hell of a draft. Unfortunately for Breeze, he rips his labrum up, and uh, it was Miami or New Orleans. Saban was the head coach of Miami, decided to go to New Orleans. If Saban got him, he would have won a bunch of Super Bowls mm. in Miami and not even gone to the college ranks, won all the national championships. He would have been uh, right down in Miami, winning them all like Don Shula did. We know how good the Saints offense is, number two in the NFL in scoring at about 35 points a game, one point below Kansas City. 
But what about the Saints' defense? Well, they've got they've got some players. I mean, Cameron Jordan is a good defensive end, a, a, a consistent pass rusher, a multiple Pro Bowl guy. On the back end, they have Lattimore, you know, a shutdown corner uh, player. But they, they've had their issues. I mean, they're they're toward the bottom of the standings in in a lot of categories, and and uh, an area that they struggle in is is red zone defense. They're they're giving up a lot of touchdowns. Their touchdown percentage is well into the sixty percent. Uh, about 27th in the league, as I recall. So I, th- they're struggling there. And I think that's going to be a big key in this football game. Um, the Bengals are number one in the NFL in, in red zone uh, percent, touchdown percentage. The Saints are right up there, third or fourth themselves. Both defenses are struggling in that area. So who's going to get seven? Who's going to be held to three? I think the defense that rises up in the condensed field and holds it to field goal opportunities. And if that can happen more than once, you know, all of a sudden you're trading seven for three and you're down a score. You know, it's 14 to six. So um, th- I think that's going to be a big, big factor. Who plays the best red zone defense? Because I, I think both offenses are probably going to be able to move the football uh, between the 20s. And then who's going to batten down the hatches? And um, the thing about, you know, Drew Brees, we talked about earlier, he's got one interception and they didn't return it for any yards. So he hasn't hurt his football team a lick. You know, they've uh, they fumbled it a little bit. They've put it on the ground 11 times. They've lost seven of them. But, I mean, Drew Brees will not turn the football over. So Andy's going to have to be good in that area. And the Bengals have only lost one fumble themselves all year. So they're tied for first in that category. So it, it is going to be a, a football game decided by who takes care of the football and who scores in the red zone because I think both defenses have, uh, have had their issues in terms of giving up yards, and that could continue. When people discuss the NFL's best head coaches, Bill Belichick obviously tops the list. You're probably going to hear the name Andy Reid, maybe the young gun, Sean McVay of the Rams. Seems to me Sean Payton doesn't generally get that kind of acclamation. How high should he be on the list? I think pretty high. And, and the reason I, I'm basing that on a lot of things, but one of the biggest things is Mike Zimmer's respect for him. And I respect the hell out of Zimmer as a, as a defensive coach and as a coach in general. I think he knows good coaches, and he has nothing but high praise for Sean Payton. You know, they work together with Bill Parcells down in Dallas, and, and Sean Payton is from that Bill Parcells coaching tree, as is Zimmer. And I, I think that I met Sean Payton. The first time I met him was at Miami of Ohio. He was on the coaching staff when my son was playing football up there. And every time I see Sean Payton, I had my son Dave, uh, we were at a Super Bowl together, and we're walking, walking around at media day, and, and then there's Sean Payton. He comes up and says hello. My son almost dropped his teeth, you know, that Sean Payton would remember him and, you know, come up to, out of a crowd and say hello to us and everything. And uh, so that told me a lot about Sean Payton, the, the mind that he has to have that kind of memory, I think is pretty, pretty extraordinary in, in the people skill stuff. But I, I think he is an unbelievably skilled coach in terms of not only handling and leading men, but um, in terms like the Andy Reid type, uh, his, his, his schematic. You know, the way he window dresses things, the way he puts guys in different uh, parts of the formation. And uh, what, what he's doing with uh, Taysom Hill is amazing. This quarterback from BYU who's like 225 pounds, and he's using him in the Wildcat. He's using him on special teams. You know, he, he always has a little gimmick and gadget. The thing that I remember him for, too, is the onside kick in the Super Bowl. Gutsy. Come out to start the second half, try to get possession of the football, and it worked. I mean, you roll the dice, man. You can get killed forever or... As if it works out, you're a riverboat gambler and a successful one to boot for the rest of your life. So he had the guts to do that in the biggest stage, the biggest game of his life. Um, and I think, Dan, it's like Brady and Belichick. You know, it, 
in this league, in this era, head coach quarterback or king. Um, now you have Andy Reid and you have Mahomes. Everybody's, you know, buzzing about that. How about Drew Brees and Sean Payton? I mean, that dynamic duo is about as good as there's been in the league for a long, long time in terms of, you know, offensive uh, mindset, productivity, uh, everything that goes along with it. Those two are attached to the hip, and um, he's, I think he's special. I think he's a heck of a coach. Last thing, since these two teams are in opposite conferences, they don't play each other very often. Every four years, the Bengals take on the Saints. Back in your playing days, you faced New Orleans three times, including a game the second week of the 1975 season that was the first regular season game ever played in the Superdome. What do you remember? I remember we shut them out. It was, it was 21 nothing, and uh, I was playing against a guy named Bob Pollard who wore number 82. I'd never played against a defensive lineman that wore a number in the 80s before, and I remember looking at, him on, looking at it on uh, the celluloid, the 16-millimeter film back in the day, and I'm like, what is did this guy move from tight end to defensive tackle? And 6'3", 250-ish type guy. So he was a different type of a, you know, more linear type defensive tackle as opposed to Joe Green, Walter Johnson, guys that I had been playing, you know, twice a year, Pittsburgh and Cleveland, those type of big behemoths. He was, he was a different kind of guy. Um, and I, I, I thought I matched up well against him because he was, he was more of a, a basketball type guy. And I played basketball as well. And a lot of his moves were predicated on that type of thing. So I really felt like I was out on a basketball court boxing this guy out, you know. But I was looking at him instead of doing it from, you know, with my with my derriere, you know, not being able to see him, just feeling that way. Now I could see him and move with him. And I felt like I could move decently and had a, had a pretty good game against him. And the other thing I remember is uh, one of my all-time favorite people, Archie Manning, got a beating. He took a pounding that day. The defense shut, shut the Saints out. Archie got, you know, yanked. And uh, Kenny Anderson – you know, was magnificent with his three touchdown passes. So Kenny outplayed uh, Archie. But two of the not only great quarterbacks of the era, but two of the best people you're ever going to want to meet, Archie Manning and Kenny Anderson uh, squaring off. And, uh, and and that I do remember, though, walking out and looking up because, you know, you play in the Astrodome. That's one thing. But the Superdome, you could have put the Astrodome in the Superdome multiple times. The vastness of it. I remember looking up. It's like mouth agape, you know, like, what the heck? And when we drove up to it, I thought, this looks like a, like an outer space thing came and landed in New Orleans right in the middle of the, you know, of the French Quarter. I mean, it, it, it was so different looking on the exterior. The architectural design of it and everything was strikingly different. It was definitely a, you know, a trendsetter. Um, if the, if the, uh, the Astrodome was the eighth wonder of the world, this, this had to be higher than that because it was, it was an amazing place. The home to seven Super Bowls and five Final Fours, to me, still the best place for a big-time sporting event. Fans can congregate on Bourbon Street, hang out in New Orleans. They kind of live and let live vibe and then get together for the big game, whether it's football or basketball, under the Superdome. A couple of uh, hurricanes, a couple of beignets. You know, it's, it's good living. There's no question about it. And There's not a bad seat in the place, that's for sure. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of seats. Yeah, New Orleans, that's a tough place to beat you, in terms of an event like that, party, Plus, uh, the actual event itself, that dog will hunt down there in the south. Thanks, Lap. Time to hear from our first guest. If you love the NFL chess match between teams and coaches, you should watch Greg Cosell every weekend on the NFL Matchup Show. It's on Saturday mornings on ESPN2 or Sunday mornings on ESPN, or you can do what I do and DVR it every week. Greg joined Dave Lapham and me on the Bengals Pep Rally Show, and we started our conversation 
by discussing the Bengals' defense, currently last in the NFL in yards allowed. After studying the tape, I asked Greg what deficiencies stand out. Uh, I would say their linebacker position has been a problem this year. Uh, and again, I don't know when, when is Nick Vigil due back, or is he? Uh, he's shortly, uh, if not at, right after the bye, hopefully no more than a week later. They, I agree with you, sir. He is the missing piece. He's the guy that can play nickel linebacker, run with those tight ends and running backs. I agree 100,000%. He's the only linebacker they have that can cover. And that's a problem in today's NFL if you don't have a linebacker that can cover because every team has to play man-to-man at some point. Now, they're not a predominant man-to-man defense, but still, every game presents situations where you have to match up, and they really can't match up well with tight ends or backs without Nick Vigil. I agree. You look at it, it's, you have a pro, pro Bowl pass rusher tackle, Pro Bowl pass rusher at end, and they've got seven and six sacks. You have number one cornerbacks as cover guys. Now, one of them is injured, slot corner, dark West Nard. That's hurt him as well. Yep. But but with, with those components, a couple of Pro Bowl pass rushers, number one picks in the back end, that's the beginnings of a pretty good defense in today's NFL. But, man, in that, in that intermediate area, getting crushed, right? Yeah, that, that's been a problem. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Dave, that you say that about their corners because it, it, it's a tough question for and, – and, you know, I've been around a long time, and I don't, I don't rip coaches ever because they know their players better than I do. I just think about things and, you know, try to extrapolate from what I see on tape. But, you know, with the corners that they do have on the perimeter and when Denard is healthy, you would think that this team could play more man-to-man coverage and be comfortable. Obviously, they have a new coordinator this year, and it always takes a while for a new coordinator on either side to sort of feel through their talent to best deploy them and utilize them. But the, the issue you face, of course, is if you can't match up to tight ends in this league, it's very difficult to play a, a steady diet of man coverage. Agreed. Agreed. You look at it, they've gotten by, or not gotten by, the, the thing they've done well, takeaways. They have 10 yeah. interceptions, you know, and, and they've got four defensive touchdowns. They have 13 takeaways, 10 picks, you know, amongst the top five in the league. That Both of their safeties have three interceptions amongst the league, league leaders. But no interceptions at the cornerback position, those guys that we're talking about. Do you think it's because of the soft coverage and not challenging people a little bit more? Well, first of all, I think that because of who they just played and how that game played out, that the numbers, the pure statistics are a little misleading. I'm not saying that, you know, that the takeaways aren't a good number, but obviously they had four interceptions in their last game, and that, sure. you know, that helped, obviously. Um, you know, interceptions to me are an odd thing. I, I've talked with a lot of coaches over the years about it, about uh, – you know, corners that can play the ball very well. My guess is Drake Kirkpatrick, who I think is a very solid NFL corner. I'm not sure if he's great at the moment of truth, if that's the strength of his game, is playing, you know, is playing the ball with the hands to make interceptions, although right. he clearly is a very good NFL corner. Um, I think William Jackson can develop into a guy like that. You know, he's a very gifted guy. He's long. He's athletic. He can run. Uh, you, know, you know, to me, their corner position is very, very solid. And, again, it comes down to what uh, Austin wants to do ultimately in terms of how much man versus how much zone. But ultimately, you know how it is, Dave. 
defensive coordinators are always going to do what they think is best not to give up big explosive plays. And then ultimately, that's the way they think. And if, and if he feels that playing more zone, which is clearly their, their foundation, is the best way not to give up big explosive plays, that's what he's going to do. And, and interestingly, they gave up two massive ones in the last game, a 60-yarder yeah. and a 72-yarder. Rookie corner Jesse Bates gets nosy, and, you know, William Jackson's playing outside technique. Yeah. Jesse's supposed to be there, and he's not. And, and then he's Sean a rookie. Williams, Right. And then Sean yeah. Williams bites, you know, on a sluggo move, the double move. He bites, and Evans runs by him. So it's like, man. You don't want to give up those one-play drives, you know? No, no. And they're a little stuck. I mean, I think Sean Williams is a nice player, but he's a certain kind of safety. And, and everybody knows this. Again, the tape tells you this. This is, you know, I'm not making a judgment here. The physical skill set and the tape tell you this. He's essentially a, a line of scrimmage safety or a box safety, whatever term right. people want to use. Right. So you're somewhat limited in what you can do with your safeties. Clearly, Bates came out of Wake Forest, and he, he played deep safety there. So that, that's what he is. But they don't really have interchangeable safeties, which is what every team would ideally love to have. Greg Cosell is our guest. You can and should watch him on weekends on the NFL Matchup Show on ESPN. Let's turn to offense for a moment. The Bengals started the year with four tight ends, including a healthy Tyler Eifert. Only one of those four guys played last week, C.J. Uzama, and he's dealing with a sure shoulder. Amazing. Yep. How much does it diminish the Bengals' attack when they can't use the two and three tight end packages that are so prevalent now in the NFL. Well, if you speak to any defensive coordinator, they'll tell you that one of the main things they look at when they study offenses are the personnel packages. And if you become a little limited in personnel packages, the options in your offense become a little limited. So I think it's it's really important, although I do love the name Mason Shrek. I mean, you have to love that. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I think... You know, I think it limits them to some degree. I think Uzoma has, has played really well for them. I mean, I think he's probably been somewhat of a revelation this year, and hopefully he can get back because when healthy, he's actually, I think, been a, a pretty meaningful part of their pass game. And they do they do detach him from the formation. They still run with him those one-by-three sets where the one is he's the single receiver to the boundary, which obviously Tyler Eifert could do as well as anybody in the league, but he's just sure. been snake bit with his injuries. Um, so And Croft could do that as well. He's a pretty athletic guy. Uh, so at least Uzoma gives them that. But it does hurt what they can do in terms of, of uh, personnel variation and multiplicity. And, and you compound the fact that Giovanni Bernard has been absent since yep. the Atlanta game. You know, and now here's a guy that not only can run it but can catch. He, he can work the middle of the field as running back out of the backfield. And, you know, your tight ends and Gio uh, adds to it. It's, it's a synergy that's, uh, that's a tough one to overcome, isn't it? It kind of limits you. Well, and the other issue, too, you start to face is does Joe Mixon end up with too many snaps? And I loved Joe Mixon right. coming out, and I think he's become a very, very good player. Um, but, you know, ultimately you get stuck because you want to win games. So, for instance, when they come back from the bye and they play New Orleans and you think, hey, there's a game we have to win at home to really show that we're, we're serious contenders, and you end up playing Joe Mixon probably 15, 20 more snaps than you want to. And that starts to add up over the season. How big a fan are you of uh, Frank Pollock? Uh, job he did down there in Dallas. I know he had great personnel to work with, but I always thought that his his techniques and um, the aggressive posture that that his lineman worked with, I, I, I envied it, and I think he's done a really good job up here. Bengals aren't aren't uh, you know blessed with tremendous personnel. They in the offensive line there is still a work in progress there. Billy Price 
you know, goes down early with an injury. How do you think Trey Hopkins has played, and how do you think the offensive line has played as a whole? Well, you know, I think they've been very solid. It's funny you mentioned Hopkins. I remember watching him at Texas, I believe he came from, and I think yes. he was a guard there. And yes. so obviously they moved him to center. And, uh, you know, I think he's held his own. And I think the O-line's been pretty solid. I think they've done a nice job, too, to help the O-line. I mean, I remember watching the tape earlier this week. Obviously that's fresh in my mind. And I thought they did a real nice job with play calling in the run game, Dave. And you'll really appreciate this because uh, it just seemed to me that, that Tampa kept lining up in over fronts and they kept running weak and they kept running to the bubble and they did yep. a really good job with that and had excellent success um, you know doing that with, with some runs by Mixon and you know those kinds of things can really help your O-line too that kind of play call people don't think about that in terms of, of fronts and, and those kinds of things but that can really that kind of play calling can help your O-line. You know, it, it's interesting, the RPOs you know that have, have uh, infiltrated the national football. They had a few of those in this game I remember. Yeah, no question. And, yeah. And, and, and it's like people are, oh, man, the running game. You know, well, you got a quarterback who has an RPO, and if he feels like, oh, I might be able to get a five-yard run, but I'm going to take this 13-yard pass, and he completes it, you can't really complain. But in a lot of cases, the run-pass balance gets, gets skewed, you know, because of all these RPOs. Very rarely now is it there, a, play, a, a play is sent in, and it's, there's an RPO attachment to it. There's a pass attachment to it. Very rarely now, it seems to me that, Teams aren't just calling a run to, to play, you know, to run the football. It's like everything's got a pass attachment to it. Have you found it to be that different in the NFL? Well, it's a great point, too, because sometimes the run-pass balance can become skewed, and people right. aren't aware of why it's skewed. I mean, you know, the, the play I remember from this week, which was great, was in the second quarter. The boy 26-yard reception was a really well-executed RPO. And, yep. and, you know, they did a, a number of those. Uh, maybe they did three or four in the game. I can't remember exactly. But more and more teams are doing this. And if you get the reaction you want, it's usually from a second-level defender, you're going to throw the ball. And, and normally you do get the reaction you want, and teams end up throwing and not handing it off. You know, when I look at Kansas City, Andy Reid has got the prototype offense with the prototype, you know, uh, position players and quarterback to execute it. He'll do the RPO, and then yep. he'll run a screen, a screen at the end of it. It's like I'm gonna, the quarter, I might hand it to the back. The quarterback might run it. He might throw a slant to the backside. He might throw a screen to the strong side. It's like, holy mackerel. you get to defend every square inch of the football field. It's crazy. Well, they're, they're really difficult because they ha they're really well-schemed in so many ways, and they have superior talent. So right. it's very difficult. You know, a lot of people might say, well, we'll match up. You know, in this way, we'll take away some things schematically. But then the matchups are so difficult because they have four guys that are incredibly tough matchups in Kelsey, Hill, Watkins, and Hunt. I mean, right. it's easy to say we'll match up, but you have to have a pretty darn good man-to-man -man defenders to, to feel comfortable doing that. When you have Watkins, who is the fourth pick of the draft, as your fourth option, you got yourself an offense, man. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's – and, look, taking nothing away from Patrick Mahomes. I mean, the guy – look, the guy's a dynamic throwing talent. There's no question about that. But when I watch this offense, I am more fascinated by their scheming than just yep. by the pure throwing of Mahomes, which, as I said, is definitely impressive. I have a new goal in life. I want to hang out at a bar with you two guys. <laughs> I'm just going to shut up and listen to you two guys talk football. It's great stuff. I, I love talking with Coach Cosell. The man, is, he, he's awesome. He's awesome, man. I, uh, you know, I just love talking football. I mean, I sit here and study this all day long. It's nice to be able to talk about it. That's Greg Cosell, who is one of my favorite guests. And in case you're wondering, 
is the nephew of the legendary broadcaster Howard Cosell. So that's what the tape tells us about the Bengals. Now time for a data-driven approach. Sam Monson is an analyst for the website Pro Football Focus, where they grade every player on every play. And as we said earlier in the podcast, rookie safety Jesse Bates is currently the highest-graded Bengal at his position. Updating the numbers, Bates currently ranks fifth among the 99 safeties who have seen at least 100 defensive snaps this season. Here's Sam Monson from PFF. Yeah, Jesse Bates has been fantastic this season. He's been doing things that we didn't really see coming. We didn't see this phenomenal uh, year coming right off the bat. Um, he's He's been excellent. You know, safeties typically, it's a lot about the plays you don't give up more than it is the plays you make on, you know, on the back end. Um, it's The clue is in the position name. You know, it's safety. You're the guy that's supposed to make sure that at the very minimum, they don't score on the play. You, you've stopped the bad plays from happening, and Bates has been doing a lot of that. He's obviously got the three intersections there as well. He's got a pass breakup. The, the passer rating of opponents throwing into his coverage is pretty absurd right now. It's 21. Um, you know, By comparison, the passer rating when Sean Williams has been targeted is 117. So he's, he's really been fantastic in coverage so far, and that's really helped that secondary. You know, it's interesting with Jesse, a uh, young guy, rookie, um, took him the second round, really liked him, obviously, his ball skills and his, uh, his ability to uh, um, read things. You know, center fielder in baseball, run to a spot, the ball's going to be there kind of thing, has those type of instincts. But as every young player will do in this last game, for example, he had the pick six where Jameis Winston never really even saw him. You know, and, and, he, and Winston locked in his receiver and, and Jesse Bates pick six. But then he gave up the 60-yard touchdown pass to Jackson, uh, uh, receiver Jackson. Will Jackson's playing outside technique, and Jesse's supposed to be over the top, taking Will Jackson away, and he gives up a 60-yard touchdown pass. So the young guy giveth, the young guy taketh away. I guess that's kind of what you expect out of young safeties as they learn in the NFL. It is. And I guess the only mitigating circumstances behind that big touchdown is that you know, they changed quarterbacks to that point, and Jameis Winston had just been throwing those seam routes all day long, and then Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in the game, and they showed them the same look. They showed them that seam that they've been targeting all day, and instead it was a different quarterback. He didn't take the bait. He didn't throw it there, and he went with the double move over the top, and, and Bates had just bit on the thing that he'd been seeing all day long from, from Jameis Winston. So, yeah, I mean, it's a mental error, and it's a mistake that, that obviously he shouldn't have made, but... Um, I think it was smart play by the Bucks and by Ryan Fitzpatrick to, to kind of take advantage of something that had been actually biting them all day up until that point. Yeah, Jesse's, you know, you're right, though. That's his responsibility is he just ran a – all he did was run a deep uh, post. Jackson just took off and ran a deep post. The double move was Mike Evans. He ran the sluggo double move, and Sean Williams bit on that, and he ran by him for a 72-yard touchdown. So each safety got destroyed, you know, on a, on a deep ball. Like you say, you can't – as a safety, you can't let the ball get behind you. You can't get over your head. And uh, each of them were guilty of that. But the good news is Jesse Bates, you know, had the pick six to kind of uh, negate that and, and make a big play. At the defensively, those four defensive touchdowns, you know, lead the NFL. Those, those big plays by the defense are, are a big factor in uh, mitigating some of, the, some of the other problems the defense is having for sure. Yeah, and Bates was a guy that was grading really well for us um, in college. His, his PFF college grades were excellent as well. So, 
Um, I guess it's, it's a little bit of a surprise to see him hit the ground running so well. A lot of uh, rookie safeties struggle um, when they hit the, the NFL, but, but he's really made this seamless transition. Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Bengals linebackers are struggling in pass coverage, Sam. How bad is the data? Yeah, and that's it's not a new trend, right? The, the Bengals linebackers have struggled for a while now. It's been the issue on that defense. They've been able to get impressive play from the guys up front. They've been able to find players in the secondary that have done well over the years. It's that linebacker level where they've really been struggling. And as you say, in particular, it's coverage this year. Um, Nick Vigil's got the, the best coverage grade of the group. But outside of that, the other three linebackers that have played significant snaps, Jordan Evans, Preston Brown, Hardy Nickerson, all of those guys have given up at least one touchdown so far. Um, they're all giving up a passer rating above 84. Um, Nickerson in particular has given up a passer rating of 145, which is pretty horrendous. Um, they're struggling. Those guys are getting beaten. When they're getting beaten, they're giving up significant yards. They're giving up significant yards after the catch. So it's not even as if they're able to just keep everything in front of them and, and limit the damage that way. Um, those guys are all giving up um, a significant amount of yards after the catch and a significant amount per reception. So that linebacker level for the Bengals continues to be a real problem in coverage. Do you think that teams need to take a, another look at how they, <clears throat> how they construct their defense and that the Bengals are an example of in today's NFL with teams throwing the ball get pass rushers. They feel like they got one in Geno Atkins, obviously, another one in Carlos Dunlap, six and seven sacks, respectively. They have number one draft picks at corner on the back end. They have Darquez Denard in the slot, and number, another number one that's injured right now. But they haven't really addressed that linebacker position with very high draft picks. And the way tight ends are in today's NFL and backs out of the backfield, I guess you maybe have to rethink how, how early you address linebacker in drafts. Yeah, I think there's there's a bit of a the, the league is in flux right now in terms of uh, correctly assigning value to all these various different positions. But, you know, as long as the league keeps trending ever more towards passing and, and nothing else, it's shifted exactly how much you should value certain positions. So, you know, a, a two-down run-stuffing linebacker used to be a valuable guy. He used to be important in your defense. Now those guys are entirely replaceable and they're really an afterthought with everything and even three down linebackers they're becoming less valuable than other positions unless you can find a guy that moves the needle um, and can be a sort of matchup nightmare on defense the way some of these tight ends and running backs can be on offense so you think of guys like luke keekley or Deion jones in atlanta those guys are so good that they're able to move the needle in that direction but if you're not that good if you're just a reasonable uh, every down linebacker it's important, but it's not as important as a cornerback or even a number two or a number three cornerback. It's not as important as a pass rusher up front because the most important things are obviously stopping the pass um, and being able to pass yourself. And the, the components of stopping the pass are, you know, the back-end coverage against those number one receivers and the pass rush up front to try and pressure quarterbacks. Linebackers are definitely important parts of the coverage. They're you know, they're, in, uh, they're going to be targeted significantly over the middle against tight ends and all that kind of thing. It just still takes a backseat to those other positions. So I think teams are, are struggling at the moment with this, this uh, kind of moving target of, you know, how much to go after these linebackers and where to find a really good one. You think it'll evolve to, like, 
safeties that can play in the box. And because teams you know, like Buchanan with the Cardinals, he was a hot ticket there for a while. Oh, man, there's a kid, you know, that is tough enough to play against the run, but he gives them a really good option playing that weak side linebacker or that second backer in their, in their nickel package. Um, and he can hold up in the run, but gives them excellent coverage. I mean, do you think they're, they'll gravitate toward the larger safety-type guy that can hold up against the running game? Because then teams will just, you know, bunch up and run it down your throat if you can't. But do you think that that's the way it might go in, in, in a, uh, earlier, sooner rather than later, I guess? I mean, I think they already have. It's just that those guys are termed linebackers all along now. You know, you look at a guy like Roquan Smith, the Bears' first-round draft pick, He's six foot one, 230 pounds. Um, you know, that's a safety if you go back 10 years. That, that guy's a strong safety. Um, but now the way the game has gone, people have gotten smaller, they've gotten faster, and those guys are just brought up as linebackers all the way along now. They, there's, no, there's none of this position switch that you would have happened when, you know, say Thomas Davis, back when he came out, 2004, I think, he went from being a college strong safety to being an NFL linebacker. Um, and that's kind of the same deal. I think that there isn't the position switch, but I think the league has already made that adjustment. And I think they're still moving in that direction. It, it's not that, you know, the six foot one, 230 pound linebacker may not be the end. We may get down to the idea of a 210 pound linebacker until, you know, until there is that threat of, uh, of the other end of the other shoe dropping, a, a threat of a team that just loads up with a, a couple of fullbacks and pounds the ball down your throat. I think up until that point, you can still get smaller and faster, and it's not having a detrimental effect. In fact, if anything, the limiting factor on how small your linebackers can get is whether they're going to be able to match tight ends in the passing game, whether, whether they can get small enough and still cover a guy that's 6'6 and 250 pounds, because that's what these, line, uh, that's what these tight ends look like. So there's only small, so small your linebackers can get before they're just too small to cover those guys. Our thanks to Greg Cosell and Sam Monson, and that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you have a minute, please give it a rating or leave a comment. Your feedback is appreciated, and five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast. <laughs>